This New America NYC event took place on February 21st, 2017, and is titled Generation Revolution, on the front line of change in the Middle East, and features Rachel Aspden, Sana Amanant, Mustafa Bayami, Angie Gad, and Catherine Zopp. So welcome to, um, to New America NYC. Um, uh, this evening we are uh, hosting a discussion of uh, Rachel Aspen's book, uh, Generation Revolution. Um, we have uh, Rachel with us uh, tonight. It's your first, it's your first stop in the US, on your US tour, is that correct? It is. I just arrived last night. So really happy to be Welcome. here. Welcome. Welcome to New York. Um, we also have uh, with us... Yeah. I, I'm sorry. I'm, I need to speak into the microphone. Um, also with us tonight, we have um, Angie uh, Gad, who's an um, Egyptian-American um, writer who was actually um, on Tahrir for, for most of um, you know the events um, uh, in the early part of the book. Um, um, Mustafa Bayoumi. Um, a writer whom um, I'm sure many of you know, um, and a professor at uh, Brooklyn College, and uh, Sana Amanat. Um, like her? That was okay. beautiful. Okay. Um, of uh, an editor, you're an editor at Marvel. Is that uh, right? Director of content development of at Marvel. Yeah. I'm not sure what I'm doing here okay. because I make comics and these guys are actually doing real work, but I'm just hanging out. It's a good time. <laughs> <laughs> um, I. I wanted to start, if we could, um, I'd like to ask Rachel to read a section from the early part of her book um, that I think really um, beautifully describes uh, the, the Egypt that she encountered um, when she first went in 2003. Um, so uh, Revolution Tahrir um, is, is many years away still, and, um, and you're observing um, uh, the role of of the doorman, I, I get, uh, Boabs, in, in 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 your building and others. So, the fear of Aib, a word that means shame, but carries a far more toxic loading, ruled supreme, and the girl's reputation was her and her family's only protection against it. The restrictions varied according to class and where a family lived. But Aib could befall a girl at any time for a hundred reasons, from being seen with a strange man in public, to coming home too late, wearing something a little too eye-catching, or doing something reserved for men, like swearing or smoking or lingering on the street. What all these reasons had in common, as I found out when I first arrived in Cairo, was the watchful eyes that permanently surrounded you, waiting for a slip. God, for both Muslims and Christians, was the supreme witness, his angels and demons always on hand to record or to encourage your sins. But Aib didn't apply exclusively to believers. Egypt's handful of atheists suffered from its effects as much as anyone else because the responsibility for moral surveillance flowed down from the supernatural realm in a pyramid to family, friends, colleagues, neighbors, passers-by, waiters, shopkeepers, and most of all to the apartment building doorman, porters, guards called boabs, 
the eyes and ears of Cairo. Boabs were working class men, often brought as children by the building's richer owners from their own ancestral villages to the city. They lived with their families in dark basements or cramped rooms under the central stairs, supported by a small monthly fee from each apartment's owner or tenant, topped up with tips for extra services and often bribes for the information only they were privy to. Bawab's first loyalty was to the building's owner, who they kept provided with gossip about tenants and neighbours. But the regime also made use of them as informants on foreigners, activists, gay men, prostitutes, and anyone else of interest to the security services. Residents who felt themselves at risk could pay for a Bawab's silence, but always in the knowledge that a threat or a larger bribe might reverse it. Women were especially vulnerable because a Bawab could and would inform not only his fellow Bawabs, but also parents, neighbours and landlords about any minor infraction, leaving a girl's reputation and therefore her family's in tatters. It's all to protect girls because they're more precious than men. Everyone shrugged when Nayera complained about the double standards that curbed her freedom. People joked about the, about the symbiotic relationships with their Bawabs. But to me, the web of observation and judgment that stretched between Bawabs, owners, tenants and neighbours seemed a sinister informal extension of the state's sprawling surveillance machine. Egypt's security services had been consolidated in the 1950s by Gamal Abdel Nasser with the help of a motley international assortment of spies and torturers including fugitive Nazis he installed in luxury villas and kept working for low pay with the threat of extradition to Israel. Under Mubarak, the security services were estimated to employ two million people, dwarfing the armed forces. The largest service, the Interior Ministry's Amna Daula, State Security, monitored not only citizens' political tendencies, but their sex lives for any hint of deviation from the state-sanctioned norm that might leave them open to blackmail or prosecution. Thank you. Um. No, I, I love that because I, you know, I, I think when you when we you look uh, from afar at an authoritarian regime, it's easy to imagine this sort of terrifying, you know, security apparatus. And and but you, you show you, you show really beautifully how sort of mundane and how it, it, it's uh, these these eyes and ears and are are part of your everyday life, people you're closest to. Absolutely, it seeps into the fabric of your life day to day. And this was something that, that, that struck me so heavily when I went there first from the UK. There is no moment when you're not being observed. And you may think it's something that is innocuous. It may just be your neighbor kind of peeking through the curtains. But that piece of information can and often will be passed on in a chain. And it will end up in the hands of the security services. Angie, is that something that you... Um I know you, you moved to, um, you were born in the States and, and moved back to Egypt as a, as a teenager. Um, could you talk about what that adjustment was like? Whether Did, did you feel that, that you had to adjust to a different level of observation? And yeah, I was actually 
sorry, I was just talking to Rachel um, before we came up and I was telling her how um, being born and raised here, uh, everyone is kind of outspoken, everyone can kind of speak their mind and uh, not really, really have to worry about anything. And I moved there when I was 15 um, and uh, I was just telling her when I started school and I uh, was just kind of speaking about the government. They're like, no, 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 we don't do that here. Um, we know you're an American, but don't talk about that stuff. So it was kind of an adjustment. Um, you know, not that I had strong uh, feelings about Mubarak at 15, having just moved to Egypt. I didn't really understand anything yet. Um, but slowly... Um, they wouldn't even entertain it as a subject. No, they just shut down. N- no, and we... I mean, these. I, would, I went to school with... Um, very uh, privileged and entitled um, individuals coming from very rich families that were um, uh, were actually Mubarak seeing in power was actually in their best interest, and even that was kind of like hushed. My my father strictly gave me orders when um, before we moved to like do not talk about politics, do not talk about anything. This is completely different, and I thought it was just a scare tactic to have so that my I wouldn't get in any trouble. But he was like, I'm serious, do not talk about anything, and. Um, and then post-revolution, we just had this huge kind of, this big vacuum where, oh my God, we can actually talk about things now. Um, so um, it was just been this back and forth, uh, post-revolution, then SCAF, then military, yeah. then Morsi, then CC. So it's just been back and forth. Whiplash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about um, what it was like watching the revolution as a, as a student. And how old were you? What year of college? When did you first go to the square? I was um, in my third year of undergrad as a political science major in Cairo, so this was perfect. Um, and I was, um, 2011, I was 21. I was 20 turning 21. And um, I was actually in Spain the day, the second day that, after the first day of protests ended. And I remember I got a Facebook invite or something to the to the event, right? And I was like, oh, this is not gonna happen. Nothing's gonna happen. We saw what happened in Tunisia and, um, I saw and I kind of entertained it with my mom. She's like, absolutely not. You're going to get arrested. You're not going. Um, so I kind of went through with my parents to go to Spain. And uh, when we got there, my friends and I, it was a small college trip. Um, it didn't last long. Uh, we had to cut it short. We lost all communication with our family. Um, internet was cut off there. So I, we had to kind of go back to landlines. And um, even that was kind of difficult to do while I was overseas. So we ended up going back to Egypt. And it's funny, as we were going back, there were people camped out in tents in um, Cairo airport trying to get out of the country and we're trying to get back in. Um, I forget the specific day that uh, was my first day, like which day in the 18 days that it was, but I kind of had to uh, sneak around and, and get there because it was strictly forbidden. Did you go back to classes or did you just Everything go was closed. The, okay. So right. schools were closed, banks were closed, everything. And this is mm-hmm. the, the period where everyone was like restless. We want to get back to work. We want to get back. So people were kind of impatient. But no, we didn't have clo- uh, we didn't have um, schools were closed and there was a curfew, so I'd have to go between a certain time where I was telling my family that I was out at the cafe with my friends uh, watching soccer, <laughs> but we weren't. Um, and um, so we kind of go, but we'd go d- during safe periods of, of the day where there wasn't any kind of threat mm-hmm. or anything to uh, young women or anything, because okay. later on at night it kind of got a little um, things got a little um, risky. And then my last day there was um, the day before Mubarak uh, stepped down. And uh, I was really sad I wasn't there the day of, but I was still celebrating as all of Egypt was at the time. So it was very fun. And you managed to get your parents finally to come, yes. right? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. The last day. Um, you had this wonderful phrase, like, 
حزب الكنفا حزب الكنفا yeah حزب الكنفا in Arabic translates to the party of the couch so this is a, a very big term that um, was it's it's those who supported the revolution from the safety of their sofas yeah. who literally um so they got to sit at home it's kind of like when you're um watching the olympics sitting there eating your chips right and you're you're commenting making fun of people but except most egyptians were sitting on their couch uh making or, you know commenting about the regime but they were not actually out there protesting uh so i finally got my parents to come and um my mom was so frightened and i had a hoodie on and she just kept grabbing me she's like don't go someone's going to kidnap you so um no one kidnapped me in this line so um it was it was exciting and there was Egyptians kind of tend to make everything fun. Um, so there was tea, um, there were vendors selling sweet potato. Stop um, nodding. Yeah, <laughs> right? They, they make a profit of everything and they also make everything kind of very fun atmosphere. So Abdel Halim, a very famous Egyptian singer, was blasting in the speakers in the square. And my parents were like, oh, this is actually not that bad. Um, and they had a great time. And then uh, about like an hour and a half into it, my dad gets a call. get out of there like the americans are coming they're like what are you talking about so we ended up kind of leaving and it was like it was rumors there was rumors spreading every day everyone was worried that there would be another um the security service or something would kind of mm-hmm. come in like the 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 battle of the camel that the yeah. second or third day i forget so um, we ended up leaving but it, they had a great time and they loved it so it was a success yeah. and so you were um you were back in in england is that correct Uh, during the days of the January and February of 2011? During the 18 days. plotting to get back? Yeah, okay. exactly. I, w- I, was, um, I worked for the Guardian newspapers, so I was sitting in the office watching all of this happen on the news as everyone else was. It must have been killing you. <laughs> It was. Yeah. And at the same time, I was getting these messages mm. when they could because during the revolution, um, the, the internet was shut down and they shut down mobile phone mm. services. So it was, you know, very... literal-minded way of trying to stop people from communicating with each other that shows you how the regime thinks, really. But when they could, I was getting these messages from people saying, we're in the square, you know, you have to tell our story. And um, that was really, um, that really crystallized in my mind the work that I'd already been doing in Egypt prior to the revolution. And I thought, yeah, you know, what these young people are doing is, is extraordinary and I would like to go back. And... document how they're trying to bring this change about and at that time you know these were these kind of euphoric days that everyone talks about these magical 18 days when everything seemed possible we didn't know what was going to happen in the future and really this book tells the story of of of, you know kind of the the arc of that hope gradually being uh crushed But, you know, th- those moments were magical. And um, as Angie's saying, you know, if you experience them, you, you can never forget them. Um, you know, we, we, we've, I think analysts talk a lot about, you know, so did the Arab Spring fail? Did Egypt's Arab Spring fail? Uh, I guess I, I, I'm, I know Angie takes the position that it's incomplete, mm-hmm. which I find a very interesting way of, of, of putting it. And I wonder if you could describe... Um, and I'd love to hear what you what you think. Um, so, I'm, I've kind of been in denial the past six years. Every time someone, um, so the anniversary was just last month, and um, remember, uh, I I was out with friends, and I brought my Egyptian flag, and I was waving it, and I was like, guys, it's 
the anniversary of six years. And like, what are you celebrating? <laughs> Nothing's happened. It's, it, and I was like, well, just let me live. Like it's, it, the memory of it is what's celebratory to me, but um, it is incomplete. And I've, I've realized that I've been in denial thinking that uh, it, it has, we haven't completed it, but it will be completed at some point, but slowly, like Rachel was just saying, just holding on to those euphoric 18 days, it's kind of hard to let go because it was so unorthodox and something that we never expected. Um, but I mean, after the 18 days were over and I've talked about this in my piece that, um, we expected everything. So February 11th, he stepped down we expected things to start, uh, working in our favor February 12th. And that did not happen. Mm -hmm. Um, we expected every, I mean, I remember right after everyone went out and started cleaning the streets and painting the sidewalk, something nobody ever did before. And it was, it was, it was amazing bonding experience that Egyptians have never done this before. People were very, um, optimistic and positive saying there's no more corruption. And it, it, it only took, it didn't take long for it to sink in that the deep state is, is deep and it's going to get deeper. And, um, so now I, 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 I fear that the regime is just making sure that this never happens again. And I think it's just clamping down harder and harder. Um, and I think that's an understatement of the century with uh, the current regime. So. Mustafa, you've, you've been nod nodding a lot. I, I'd love I have to, a tendency to there, nod. <laughs> no, but there were, no, but there were so many, um, I mean, so many interesting things in, in what you, what you said. Um, I guess I, I'm wondering um, if you might be able to talk a bit about the deep state that, Angie mentioned, and, and um, I, it's a phrase we're hearing a lot now um, in reference <laughs> to our own <laughs> government, which is interesting, but, but could you maybe yeah, sure. describe um, what happened in Egypt? Uh, I think I would say, you know, one, there are ways, of course, where Egypt is very different than uh, the United States, and then there are ways in which sometimes the two seem to approximate each other in troubling ways. Um, like, I'll give you an example because, you know, I think that the way this began with this idea that in the uh, United States we have, like, complete freedom of expression, freedom of mm -hmm. thought, and in Egypt it was completely shut down. Well, tomorrow, actually, I'm going to be on a panel at Brooklyn College where I teach. We're having a panel about freedom of expression and the First Amendment on campuses. Um, and I'm talking about testimony that was uh, given by two Muslim students last year about the fact that there was an NYPD undercover officer on that campus for at least four years, you know, and the, and the New York Police Department has been following the activities and daily lives of Muslim Americans uh, um, for years in this country. And I know a lot of Muslim Americans here in the United States who feel like they don't actually have that freedom to say what they want to say in public and are very concerned about the listening apparatus of the state. And the, the, uh, the uh, Associated Press won a Pulitzer Prize precisely for this series when they broke the, uh, the story from the, the, uh, um, the degree to which the NYPD was in fact just spying on the very quotidian, daily, meaningless, you know, uh, elements of life, from going to a, a cafe to getting your hair cut to whatever, buying an airplane ticket. Um, so in that way, maybe there's not, you know, maybe the similarities are not exactly as stark as we want to think. And so I think it's really important to think about the ways uh, in some complexity about these two locations. Be that as it may, you know, I think um, um, we do have a lot of talk about the deep state in the United States right now. And um, uh, uh, according to some, they're supposed uh, to save us, right? It's these. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> in Egypt, I think one way of thinking about the situation in Egypt um, with some complexity, it seems to me, is that there was a revolution, there was an uprising, a popular uprising in 2011 that certainly led to a change of government. Um, and uh, now, uh, whether that change of government, though, was complete is mm -hmm. a real question because in a lot of ways, you actually had a kind of inter-elite competition happening in mm -hmm. Egypt at that time. You had essentially the old style military, which controls vast amounts of the economy in Egypt um, directly. Uh, and the people who are commissioned officers get, get uh, mm -hmm. uh, commissioned out of the military and get vast tracts of the economic uh, uh, plentitudes in the country. Uh, you have growing, massive levels of growing inequality in Egypt. Uh, and then, but you also do have a kind of like upwardly mobile bourgeoisie class that's actually separate from the military. And so when you have the, the and, and what's interesting about Mubarak is that Hosni Mubarak was himself a military man, but he was from the Air Force, which is not traditionally the, the, where the rulers in Egypt have come from either. So in some ways he was outside of the traditional elite on that level. But more importantly too, is that he was grooming his sons to, over, to take over afterwards. And his sons do not come from the military, they come from that other sort of bourgeois class. So I think that in a lot of ways you had a popular uprising against massive amounts of inequality, massive amounts of uh, um, police brutality. You had the Khaled Said case before. You had, um, you had the church bombing not months earlier, so there was also sectarian violence that was actually in some ways galvanizing the population against the state. Uh, you had a lot, a whole lot of labor agitation if you look at the April 6th movement and others. And so that's often underplayed, the labor element to the Egyptian uprising. Um, so you had the, all of the groundwork for a real social you know, uh, change. And then it seemed in some ways that, it, you know, that what happened was just the inter-elites, within the elites, they just changed places. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that, I think, is a good example of how the deep state actually will maintain itself um, while the rest of the country thinks that they're actually gaining something from this. And then, it, uh, you know, to many, I think, to many observers of Egypt, there was a sense that as soon as that happened in February of 2001, there was a plan that they're going to make sure that they stay in charge forever and as long as they can. <laughs> However, the economy has, of course, ground to a complete halt in Egypt to the point where now they've had to float the pound, the pound which have traditionally been tied to the American dollar. And so now the, the pound is about 20? 15 and some, More and then 18, 15, well, 18, 18 on the black yeah, market. Well, yeah. yeah, so it went from 8 to 18 or yeah. so, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Overnight. So people have basically lost half of their income and half of their, 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 um, their family worth at the same time, too. Um, so, you know, my way of... Uh, this is, I'm giving you too long an answer, but no, I'll no, just no, end with this. Great. But my, my way of thinking about the um, the revolution too is that the early phase of the uprising of the revolution was essentially, it seems to me, a political uprising. It was many different mm -hmm. parts of the civil, Egyptian civil society mm -hmm. saying, we want to be able to have a voice in our affairs. We want to be able to have a change in our society. We want to be able to articulate that change. And, you know, the, the deep state tried to manage that in all kinds of ways and not let it come to fruition. But now the levels of economic inequalities and levels mm -hmm. of deprivations and eventually the levels of political and, and uh, um, you know, uh, just shutting down of every element of civil society in the country, I think will ultimately lead to another kind of uprising. For all of the violence that has been there in Egypt from 2011 till today, 
it doesn't compare to a lot of violence that happens in the rest of the in the rest of the region. And my fear is that it, you know I do think I I completely agree that the that what's happening in Egypt is incomplete. Um, but my fear is that the next phase is actually going to be much more violent than we what we've seen already. Did, did you? Want to, I just was curious to know what your what your thoughts on on like the appetite of Egyptians now for another uh, wave of. Uh, Another wave of uprisings. I just feel like you talked to a lot of people um, now. Just just last year, I was just talking to random people on the streets, and they're like, "We don't want we don't want this anymore. We just um, everything is stable. We don't want to be like Syria. We don't want to be like Iraq. We you know everyone's kind of going to hell. Sorry, but um, and we're the only ones that are safe and stable. And um, they just want to maintain that. They don't want to go back to that 2011 to 2015, or 2014 period of uncertainty and stability. Um, and they're like, well, the economy's worse now than when it, than before the uprisings. And you see a sense of hesitancy among people. And whether that uprising, whether it's gonna take, I don't know how long it would take for, the, for this to resurface again, but I'm not sure what your thoughts are on their appetite right now. Well, I mean, I think, and I'd love to hear what Rachel thinks about this too, but I, I think you're absolutely right. I think people in Egypt are exhausted. Uh, I mean, how long has this been going on and they haven't seen anything that's worth, uh, that's coming to fruition out of it? And how many times do they have to vote? I mean, their voting is, and for it to be meaningless at the same time, in a sense, too. Like, they got, they got kind of sick of voting. I mean, I remember, I can't remember at which point it was that I was talking to my Egyptian friends and I was like, Egyptians are really good at ousting governments. Keeping them in, not so much, you know? Um, and it is, it is completely um, uh, it, it overwhelming. I mean, I think we see just a little tiny, 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 tiny bit of it, you know, from the election of Mr. Trump. Because, I, mean, I mean, I've gone to many protests and I'm like out on the streets and I'm trying to do things about that too. And I'm already tired. I mean, I have a day job too, you know? And so imagine what it's like if you're actually in a place where it's like, like Egypt. Well, no, just, hey. You described this in your, in your uh, essay, talking about it. people were complaining about how the revolution lasted too long, even in the yeah, eight, 18 days, yeah. <laughs> and they were like, oh, I just want to go back to my job. I want to get paid. I want to, I want to be able to go to the cafe and, and eat at the bougie restaurants on the Nile. Um, but nobody could do that because there was a curfew and there was barricades. Nobody could. But the, I mean, the most important thing to understand about that is that that's exactly also how authoritarian regimes work. Want it to be. They yeah. want it to be that way. They mm -hmm. want politics to be so expensive, so dangerous, so exhausting especially, yep. and that they demobilize the public away from they just uh, from any kind of uprisings, any kind of politics, any kind of assembly, so that you just keep your back to the wall yep. and you walk a straight line. And, you know, that's, that's exactly, I mean, Mr. Trump is trying to keep us exhausted for a reason, yep. too. No, I love the, the way you use the word exhausting. I mean, I think that's exactly right. It's not fear. It's not, it's just sheer, yeah, exhaustion. I, I feel like every, I mean, not to interrupt, but I feel like every single time he tweets, I get more angry. I don't get, I mean, I'm exhausted, but then I'm like, what do I do next? Where's the next protest and or rally? And how do I keep activated? And I think the problem is like having a lot of protests and rallies is sort of the organization, continued organization and sort of the next steps. How do we continue to be organized and aligned in our efforts outside of just going to rallies, what's next? I mean, I think that's where the Women's March was pretty interesting because you were able to go to these events and then they had follow-up and follow-up and follow-up. And I think that's the larger question is when you have this entire you know nation that is activated, 
Um, how do you continue to keep them engaged and excited and angry a little bit um, and and not exhausted all the time? It, it's funny you mention that because um, so I I can't remember for how long, but after the revolution, every Friday, it was Friday of rage, Friday of anger, Friday of something. Um, every Friday, people were going out. It was like, oh, we haven't protested for 60 years. Or we're going to get it all out now. Um, so everyone was protesting all the time. And I mean, that went on for a couple of years until CC kind of banned it. And then um, I would kind of say now, as you were saying that, and Mustafa, as you were speaking, um, since the economy is so much worse now than it was before, um, I think people are kind of on the, well, if we protest again and we do this again, how much worse is it going to be and how much risk am I willing to take? Um, I think what I'd say about that is that, um, you know, if, we, if we're talking about Egypt, what happened with the the generation of the parents, that the people I'm talking about in, in 2011, they had this implicit understanding with the state that as long as they stayed out of politics, they would have a certain standard of living. They would, there would be enough jobs. They would be able to get food for their families. You just had to keep your back to the wall. Stay out of politics. Don't cross the red lines. Everyone knew what they were. And what happened before the revolution was that that started to break down. People realized that it didn't matter whether they stayed out of politics or not. They weren't going to get these things that they had been promised. And what, um, you know, as, as Mustafa's very, very rightly saying, Egypt is facing this, um, you know, these structural limiting factors that no one can do anything about. The population explosion, I think by 2035, the population is going to be 140 million. There's no way to feed these people. There's no way to have enough water for them. There's no way to give them jobs. Um, so regardless of what political measures are in place, people are going to be driven to this point of desperation where they have to act. And I think what we're seeing now in, in, in the US and in the, in the UK as well is that though the um, economic conditions are different, people do feel that they've reached this point where politics is impinging on their lives whether they want it to or not. There are going to be consequences for them and they can't afford to be passive any longer and they have to take action. But I, I mean, I guess for for me, I feel like I completely agree. I think that's totally the case. I feel like people have this desire, um, like they have no choice but to become activated and to be a bit more politicized. But then on the other end of it, it's sort of, you know, this fear and whoever voted for Trump, that's totally cool. But it is sort of that fear of like, oh, to, who, who out there, who that I'm coming upon, um, voted for Trump. And there's this sort of, you know, being a brown person and being a Muslim in this country, um, there's that constant fear that you are not as, as vocal as I'd like to be. Um, there's that fear that you might, you have to be a little bit more cautious. You have to be, um, because we're so polarized right now. Um, and the struggle that I'm having, especially, you know, being the position that I have at Marvel and being a little bit more vocal, is to make sure that I don't also, pardon my French, piss off half of my consumer base who might have a very different ideology than what I'm putting out there. Um, so it is this sort of constant um, walking of the line of feeling like you want to be active and engaged, but then at the same time understand that 
maybe we, you know, I, I feel sometimes I have to be a bit more silent. So there's this thing hanging over me um, that makes me second guess the things that I'm saying because of the fact that we're, we are so deeply divided now than we ever have been before. So, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how to, you know, potentially deal with that. Um, this is my therapy for, for you guys. <laughs> Help me. <laughs> I, I don't... I don't mean to change the subject. I think it's going to look like that for a second. But I wondered if we could talk for a minute about about institutions, like you know, institution building. It's a very sort of boring political sciencey topic, but I think it's really necessary because you know, I, um, and I include myself in this. Journalists love talking about revolutions and activists and people who are outspoken and who who uh, call for change. But then, and and that's important. We need to to get people who are willing to call for change, but then you need the institutions that are going to sustain that. You need these, these sort of uh, very mundane, the post office, the um, reven internal revenue service, you know, the, and when these are, um, are not uh, kind of constructed in a way that will support democracy, you're, you're sort of lost. And, and I, this is a really big question. I don't know the answer to it, but I, I would just love to sort of throw it open to uh, the panel. And if you could talk about your observations um, around, because I, I mean, the, I thought about this because you were talking about the cleaning of the streets, which is such a kind of a lovely moment. I mean, that is, that is a moment that gives us a lot of hope. It suggests that people are... Um, are valuing the public space as, as, a, as a sort of a community in a way that I have not personally observed, honestly, you know, um, reporting in the Arab, Arab world all, all that very much, you know. Um, I, yeah, I just love to sort of hear what, hear what you have to say. Because I, I, I was, um, you know, because the idea that the Arab Spring failed could could possibly be dangerous, right? I mean, we're, we're in a we're in an era where um, um, these um, sort of misinformation about refugees and and um, um, about um, the state of the Middle East is is being used to um, well. We, uh, I, I don't want to to kind of get sidetracked too much, but, but there, but 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 I, I think there. Do you agree that there's a sort of a danger with, in, in seeing this as a failure or accepting the idea that it could be a failure? Um. Yeah, I think so. I mean, just you we've covered quite a lot of ground. I'm sorry. <laughs> question, but um, just to take it back to the institutions for yeah. a moment, just to illustrate what it's like somewhere like Egypt, I speak in the book about uh, someone I knew who was working in the Ministry of Justice very, you know, very vital, central, central role. And he turns up at work one day and the building is locked. And he says, well, you know, what's, what's going on? I need to get inside and, and do some work. And they say, oh, no, you can't go in because there are snakes. And he's like, what do you mean, snakes? And they, and they said, well, the, the basement's full of snakes. So he said, well, what are we going to do about it? And they said, well, don't worry, just calm down we're going to bring in the Rifai. And the Rifai are this mystical Sufi order of religious men who specialize in 
taming snakes, scorpions, and other dangerous creatures by reciting verses from the Quran. Thank goodness. <laughs> so, you know, eventually the Rifai were brought in, the basement, you know, some Quran was read in the basement, the snakes, if they ever were there, were dispatched. And, you know, everyone had lost 10 days of work. So this is a kind of like, r ridiculous. I, I feel like Egypt always swings between tragedy and farce, and this is one of the farcical elements, but this is a kind of ridiculous illustration of how hollowed out the institutions are, how incapable they are of, of, of doing any serious work. And, um, you know, just, just moving on to what you were saying about the failure of the Arab Spring, I think there was a lot of criticism directed at the liberal revolutionaries of Tahrir um, after things started to go wrong. And people were saying, you know, you, sh you should have organized, you should have reached out to the rest of the population who don't share your values. You should have educated people, you should have lifted them up. And I think that was completely unfair because they were stuck in this situation where the institutions were so rotten you know, the, the, the limiting factors were so severe that no matter what they did, they couldn't have done that. However, what they did achieve, and what I think is so vital, is that they gave people these experiences that, that they'd never had before, the experience of participating in, in a protest with tens, hundreds of thousands of people, of seeing a president step down because of your actions, of taking part in free elections, which is something that no Egyptians had ever experienced before. And these moments, I think, have just sown the seeds. People know that this is possible. And so when circumstances change, as we hope they will in the future, I'm sure they will bear fruit. Um, you know, it's so easy to judge from the outside, mm -hmm. but I'm gonna do it for a second. <laughs> Which is that, you know, I, I thought at the time of the revolution, too, that really what, Egypt, what would have benefited Egypt the most would have been a, a caretaker government in the beginning, and then the writing of the constitution, and then to have the real, you know, sort of elections and the, and the, the, the sort of democracy flourish from there. And instead, it, the, the, they put the government in first, and then the writing of the constitution came after, and then that became a huge battle inside of Egypt, and then Morsi claimed himself to be above the law, and, the, and the, you know, it was all part of the problematics of it all. Um, and so, I, you know, and that also just illustrates the, the, you know, the degree to which uh, there's a lack of institutional framework, and the different elements of the society were really at each other's throats, or, you know, there was no parliament forever in Egypt as well. Um, it basically isn't, and uh, yeah, <laughs> and um, there was the judiciary was then af against the uh, the executive branch, and like you know, so there's really no, there's there's such a um, an atrophied um, a political culture in Egypt that has, of course, that has gone since the I mean even before fifty two. I mean it was uh, it was it's this huge bureaucracy that everybody. Uh, is a part of in Egypt is a remnant also of British colonial rule inside of Egypt too, and so you know we there has to be a much more um, uh, sort of wide ranging solution that's really otherwise Egypt is doomed. But at the same time too, I mean what we did see, what we have seen at certain moments is you know an incredible amount of innovation and and people want, wanting to work together and making different kinds of realities possible. Uh, and I mean you know at the ground 
on the ground level. Like even you know during the days, I was there actually in late uh, when one of some of the Morsi uprisings went up, uh. sort of late 2012, early 2013, and um, even then you saw some of the uh, immediate um, um, medical clinics sort of pop up, 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 pop up again in Tahrir and like, mm -hmm. and they were housed, they were often in churches, but the doctors were both Muslims and Christians. And there was like a real sense of unity trying to work towards this. And, you know, so there was, there's a lot of that was happening. Um, and then on the other hand, you know, you say you need an IRS. Well, Egypt hasn't had, that nobody collects taxes <laughs> in Egypt. <laughs> To the point where one of Morsi's, I mean, one, one good idea if you hope to pay your traffic cops enough that they don't have to extract bribes every time they make it, you know. My cousin was yeah. visiting me a few years, like, I don't know, like four years ago. And, um, and so we decided, you know, we're walking around um, midtown Manhattan. And he's like, let's go to Central Park. So I'm like, okay, so we, could, we get to Central Park. And he's, he wants to rent bikes. And he's just looking at Central Park. And he's like, this is so beautiful. He's like, I would pay taxes if we could have this, you know. Um, but nobody pays tax. I mean, the, uh, Sisi's solution to Egypt's economic problems was that people should just give the change in their pockets to the government. The solution was text me an Egyptian pound. If one if one Egyptian texted me an Egyptian pound, we'd have ten million dollars or ten million Egyptian pounds. That was his solution to the economic issue. It was a joke, but I also want to give a special shout out to cultural institutions and the importance um, of making sure we do not overlook them because, you know, like, you know, we, we obviously, financial institutions, um, government facilities, like post offices, those, I mean, those are the things that make us make life happen. Mm -hmm. And I think these kind of cultural institutions and the arts make life worth living. Um, and it's a, it's a reminder of the ideals that, um, these revolutions and these um, this sort of this cries for for change, um, what they're built upon and what we're actually fighting for. You know the um, you know whether it's sort of the history of a particular country or sort of the larger ideals um, and the stories that we tell ourselves um, and the meaning and the messages behind them. How incredibly important it is that we invest in them and that we sort of continue to build them and grow them because I do believe that social change and actual change begins by injecting that conscientiousness through through our culture, um, through actual cultural change. And, you know, for me, I'm always going to say that starts with storytelling and the images that we put out there um, fundamentally because that's that's education in a very small and subtle way. But it's also economic, right? Because I, I think sometimes the... Um, the, the you know, the idea that we'll educate away corruption or that it's a, a matter of just having seminars for government officials. You know, I, I'm constantly a friends who work at NGOs. They're constantly having, you know, seminars. And, um, but, but, you know, I, I, I remember the first year I lived in Damascus, my mother sent me a care package at one point and I went down to the central post office to pick it up. And it took me, um, I had to pay, before I could pick it up, it took me two hours waiting in lines and bribes to three separate officials. And, and, you know, just the, the word exhaustion comes to mind. It's just like the most mundane tasks um, of daily life yeah. require. Yeah. What? Yeah. <laughs> I, but what were you saying? I Rachel must know a lot about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's yeah. everybody who's, you know, has had a million experience. But, but, but it's just, I, I, I think um, there's a point where corruption, and, and 
I can't really speak about Egypt. I, I don't know Egypt well, well, the Egyptian example on it. But in Syria, for example, it's just they're, they're at a they're, they're, there's a point where it's not even seen as bad behavior anymore. It doesn't even really register. It's just supporting your family. It's doing what you have to do. And how do you get past that? It's it's not. You know, I feel like we're beyond the reach a little bit of, of cultural institutions and just education. Yeah, I, I'd just like to go um, back actually to what Sana was saying about storytelling, because I, mm -hmm. I think what you were saying, what you're talking about is how things become normalized. And I think if, um, you know, if, if progressive people don't take control of the narrative, the state will step into that vacuum. <laughs> and that is something that, that definitely happened in Egypt. And a lot of what I found so confusing and baffling about my time there was trying to work out where people's beliefs had come from. And in a lot of instances, they were from stories that they'd been told by the state. Mm. So for instance, uh, in northern Cairo, there is this looming, insane, crazy panorama that commemorates the 1973 oh, yeah. war. And this was a gift from the North Korean regime to Hosni Mubarak. Mm -hmm. And you go inside this panorama and it tells you the story of the heroic, manly, you know, kind of triumphant Egyptians overcoming these cowardly, effeminate, cringing Israelis and how the whole war was this completely fabulous triumph that, you know, just shows how great Egyptians are, how rubbish Israelis are. The fact that the war actually ended with Israeli forces poised 100 kilometers mm -hmm. from Cairo is neither here nor there. But, you know, people believe this myth that they've been told. And in the absence of more positive stories, mm -hmm. I think that that is where it becomes really, really dangerous. Mm -hmm. but, but if your salary is, is so low that you actually can't pay your bills or support your family with your, you know, what, I mean, there are an enormous number, I don't know the number of, uh, Egyptians that are employed by the state, but it's, it's it's quite a lot, isn't it? You know, and, and right, and so, so if your teachers, policemen, and and you're telling these people, we we can't write them off as being sort of uh, kind of bad state functionaries, really, right? It, it, I mean, we're we're not the state that we're, you know, kind of arguing against is is everyone essentially, right? It's it's everyone's uncle, it's everybody's dad, or um, maybe I'm not making sense. Okay. I, no, I, I just think, I, I mean, I, I'm just asking the question. I mean, is, is, there, a, is there a point, is there something beyond narratives? Um, I don't know. I think that's a very good point. And, and I think one, another related thing that's worth mentioning in terms of um, the military in particular and the support for the military coup is that Egypt still has um, compulsory military service. Mm -hmm. So all male Egyptians have had the experience of being part of the armed forces. And it is this real rite of passage for people where no one wants to do it and people will go to quite extreme lengths I to try and get out story. of it. Mm -hmm. uh, you met someone who uh, had, had, had gained, deliberately gained 88 pounds mm -hmm. to, to get out of military service? Yeah, <laughs> That was one of the, the, the less off extreme <laughs> measures. Yeah, yeah people, if you, if you um, cut off your, your trigger finger or one of your big toes, you will also be exempt from service. So it just depends what lengths you're prepared to go to. But um, yeah, th this, this particular way in which people had felt absorbed um, into the military, they had, mm. they had identified with the army. Um, you know, they, they thought that the army is us, we are the army. And... 
in a lot of yes. ways that the army is the state as well. Mm -hmm. So that I think that that explains a lot of the yeah, support. That's what I'm trying to yeah, get at. Exactly. You know, it, it's not yeah. a ma matter of just sort of okay, this telling people the state is telling you this, but if, if you are the state, if everyone is the absolutely. Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.